So we're continuing on in the book of Matthew, and we're kind of in what we call volume three as we've come back to it. Here's a little bit of the roadmap of where we've been. We started a couple weeks ago with chapter 13, where we came back to. We've done a couple of the parables. We started with why Jesus taught in parables again. And if you remember, I connected you to another series that we did online that you can find just about the parables, and it contains a lot more parables than we're going to cover in this chapter. So if you're interested more in going deeper in Jesus' use of the parables and how he taught with parables and just some other parables that come from the other Gospels that aren't in Matthew, check out that series. But we kind of tied that in, talked about why he taught in parables, and then looked at a couple of them. We started with the parable of the sower. Then we did the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. Tonight we're doing the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. We're doing the parable of treasure and the pearl of great price. And then we're going to look at concluding this chapter, wrapping it up, and moving forward. Next week, we're going to try something impossible in this group. We're going to try to cover an entire chapter in one night. Uh, So tonight, yeah, I know. Some of you are already taking the challenge on. I see hands ready to go up, you know. No, I'm not going to let it happen, you know. So here's what I think we would do. If next week we can't finish off chapter 14, when you come to the party on the 12th at my place, we'll finish it then. How's that? That should be like a good incentive to see if we can finish off a whole chapter. Tonight and next week, we're going to be kind of saturated in scripture. You guys know we do some series sometimes where we go for quite a while without doing a lot of scripture. Obviously, going through Matthew, we're going to be reading scripture, but we're going to be reading quite a bit of it. And then after the 12th, Jeremy's doing the entirety of chapter 15. Some of you are looking at the fact that Matthew's probably like 28 chapters. I mean, we're almost halfway after, you know, almost 30 weeks in Matthew. We'll be like halfway through this thing. So we are building the great audio commentary on the book of Matthew somewhere for people in cyberspace to listen to. Let's open up to chapter 13. I want to tell you that this chapter has been arranged by Matthew, and it has kind of an overarching theme. Of course, each parable has a meaning. And we've looked at some of the deeper meanings in the parables so far that we've covered, but there is kind of an overarching theme going on here. There's probably a question that Matthew is trying to respond to. And it's probably a question that was asked not only during the time of Jesus when he was actually giving these parables, but shortly thereafter as the church is inaugurated, you hear this question. If the kingdom of God is really here, if it has begun in part, if it has invaded this world, why don't things look radically different than they did before? We ask that same question in our own life. Like, if Jesus has claimed the victory, if the kingdom has begun, if we as the church are in the kingdom and we're supposed to be doing something on this earth, why does everything look the same? Where's the radical change that's supposed to happen? In part, chapter 13 takes on most of those themes. For example, if you look at the parable of the sower, one of the explanations that comes out of why everyone doesn't just believe in Jesus is because in the parable of the sower, we see that people are at different places. That's what the soils represent, as you remember that parable. So that's partly a response to the people who are saying, why don't things look different? Why doesn't everybody just believe in the Messiah? Because people are in different places in their life. When we looked at the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net last week, one of the questions that's asked is, well, if Jesus is here and the Messiah is here, why is there still evil in the world? Why is there still suffering in the world? I also told you that in the fall, we're going to be covering that series, Suffering and Evil. Jesus didn't really necessarily give the answer to why, 
But in part, he was answering that question of, if you're the Messiah, if the kingdom's here, why does everything look the same? His answer in the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net was, because things will be sorted out later. Just because I'm here doesn't mean that everything stops now. The judgment is still in the future. The separation is still in the future. Evil will be weeded out in the future. So again, it's a response to, okay, so you're here. Explain what this all means. Tonight's parables kind of start to answer a similar question. Another subtlety that's going around is, if the kingdom is here, why isn't it just spreading all over the world? And is this small, little, tiny teaching that comes from Jesus in this part of the Roman Empire, like how is this going to spread? Of course, historically we know that it did, but Jesus in his parable is beginning to explain how even small things will spread. Let's open up to chapter 13. Look at verse 31. We're going to start with the first parable, the one about the mustard seed. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. That's it. That's the parable. You know, we've said a number of times that when Jesus spoke, oftentimes it sounded like he was the Riddler. He would throw out a parable and then he would move on to something else. In chapter 13, a couple of times the disciples have asked him, explain that, and he has. This one is left exactly the way it's given. So in light of what we were just talking about, about trying to anticipate this idea of the kingdom spreading, that's exactly what's happening here in this parable. You can see that what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Remember that Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven the way that other gospel writers use the kingdom of God. So don't read this. Whenever you see Matthew saying the kingdom of heaven, don't imagine that he's talking about just the future kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom, part now and part yet to come. So this kingdom is like a mustard seed. So what does that mean to you? Anyone seen a mustard seed turn into a tree? Is there such thing as a mustard tree, by the way? That's kind of curious language. It is a mustard seed, by the way, the smallest of all seeds. Now, this is kind of a, a little bit of a footnote, but people have actually tried to take apart Jesus' agricultural knowledge in this parable and say, first of all, the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed. And second of all, mustard seeds don't turn into trees. They turn into like bushes. So what are you talking about in this parable? It's part of Jesus' use of hyperbole. Sometimes he's trying to emphasize the point, and he's probably making a reference. So you might look at the small little parable and go, all right, I think I see the analogy. Let me show you a couple things that are in here. First of all, he uses the word your seeds to clarify that he doesn't think that it's the smallest of every seed. It's the people that he's speaking to. In fact, the word your doesn't actually appear in the Greek. It's written into the NIV to emphasize that he's kind of writing it in a way to say it's the smallest of the seeds that the people that I'm speaking to would identify with. But what a mustard seed is, is from the smallest seed that it is, it grows pretty large. He calls it a tree over here, probably as a reference because he follows it up with these words, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. 
A couple of places in the Old Testament, that language, a tree on which the birds come and, and perch on its branches, is a reference to the kingdom of God, or God establishing something in the midst of the people of Israel. He would often use the image of a cedar tree, or some very large tree, and how the birds would come and nest there. And that's kind of what he's making this analogy. But again, a mustard seed, it turns into a pretty big bush. Well, some people say it can turn into something as high as 10 feet high. I'm not trying to defend that he understands what a bush is or what a tree is. The point is, he's actually using it to say this little tiny thing will grow very, very large. It's not stated right there, like the next verse in Matthew isn't, and he said this to the people so that they would understand that the kingdom was going to grow. That's what we read and understand in the context of why is he even telling this parable in the first place. He does another parable right next to it, the parable of the yeast, that's almost identical in its, in its purpose. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. That's it. That was the whole parable, that simple one. Again, why does he speak the parable? Because he's trying to indicate that the smallest amount of this yeast or this seed is going to spread throughout a large area. This large amount in the Greek, some of your translations may actually include these words, like three sedas. It's a, it's a measure that probably they estimate would feed about 100 people. So this person, whoever is making the dough, is making a large amount of dough for a large, large reception of people. And a little bit of yeast is enough to leaven the entire batch of dough. Yeah? Is it just talking about numbers and growth, though? Because like, I always took from that like that it could have a, a large impact, like a little bit of the kingdom of heaven can like, impact greatly, but not necessarily like grow in numbers, or that it's spreading number-wise or whatever, but or demographically, I just kind of always viewed it like that little bit of yeast completely transforms a large amount of dough. Like it's now leavened as opposed to unleavened. Like, it, like I always viewed it as transformation, so maybe I'm totally off. No, I don't think transformation is off because I don't know that growth always is numeric. Remember, the kinds of questions that are circulating are people asking if the kingdom is here, what difference is it going to make? And in part it is, yes, the kingdom will begin to expand and grow, but maybe even more potent is the idea that the kingdom is slowly going to expand in its impact. Okay, so you read that there. Jeremy. I actually think these parables might be saying slightly different things. And then the first one, I think clearly is talking about the mustard seed being the kingdom and the way that you're talking about. But it seems like in the second parable, the yeast is not equivalent to the mustard seed. The yeast is that which is added. So it's like the yeast is maybe Jesus or something, which is, or the spirit, or, or it's the element which is working through our lives and causing, causing growth and, and causing change. Not necessarily to some external entity, but even just to us. It's true that they operate slightly differently. So I'm glad you pointed that out. By the way, some commentators point out this, that the first one applies to men and the second one applies more to something that women would relate to in the first century. All right? um, that may be a stretch, 
But if you don't believe it's a stretch, it indicates, according to some commentators, that Jesus is trying to reach people wherever they are, including reaching something that a man would be familiar with and also something that a woman would be familiar with, that he's not trying to segregate in any way. Another approach to look at it is along the lines of what Jeremy just said, but I think it actually ties more back into what Monique is saying. The first one, the mustard seed itself becomes the very large tree. In the second one, it's the very small thing that, I don't want to use the word infects, but produces an impact upon the whole amount of dough. So in one, it can be talking about the growth of the kingdom as it becomes very large. The second one does seem to follow more about the impact, the way that it affects the things that are around it. So even a small part of the kingdom can affect a large thing around it. And that, I think, is what Jesus is saying. Now, he doesn't explain how. It's not a direct teaching. It's still a parable. That means that we have to go a little bit and we can look back and say, well, historically, I think that happened. I mean, we see that one of the greatest miracles of the faith is just how it spread and how it grew and how it moved. Okay? But put that aside. I don't know that he's making that illusion. I think he's actually talking to the people who are listening as disciples saying, be part of this. A small thing can make a huge difference. I think it's more of an invitation than some sort of future prophetic idea that, uh, just wait. Yeah. I know we're trying to understand, like, okay, the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven, the comparison he's making, but can we back up to what is the kingdom of heaven? Because, like, I feel like I have kind of a sense of it, but I don't know if that's just what I infuse, like, my own meaning into. Philip, you want to explain that one? Philip, is, we, we've struggled with this one a number of times in the past. Let me try to succinctly state it. The other gospel writers use the word kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. I think they're synonymous. But the kingdom is, when Jesus announces that the kingdom is at hand, he's making a proclamation that the kingdom begins now. So what is that? The kingdom has been interpreted to mean the rule and the domain of God. Okay, So his kingdom, and it's in part now, so you always have this tension, and Paul articulates a tension also about a, there's a now part of the kingdom and a not yet part of the kingdom. Okay? So the domain that God rules, and some theologians break it up into three sections. The kingdom of power, meaning that God has always ruled. Okay? The kingdom of grace, meaning that, that God's rule has now come in the form of Jesus and announced this new era of the church where grace is available. And then there's the future kingdom of glory, which some people just call heaven, all right, so there's this feel, and so you can divide up a number of ways. The most simple way that Jesus used it, though, was to make this announcement that the kingdom is here. In the Lord's Prayer, we do that same tension. We pray, thy kingdom come, and then we divide the two on earth as it is in heaven. You're like saying, in part now, in the way that it's going to be when it's fully realized and yet to come. The reason I kind of pointed out the kingdom of heaven language is because in the church, a lot of people who read Matthew cross out actually the word kingdom. They're just trying to find out, and they all just read heaven is like a mustard seed, or we've heard heaven so much that really if we're going to cross out a word, it would probably be heaven. It should be the kingdom is like this. And he's trying to emphasize that. Does that kind of succinctly answer the idea? 
It's very important because Jesus refers over and over, and in some places there are numerous parables where he says the kingdom will be like this. So I think it's, it's an important concept that we understand that, and that tension has always been that it's part here but not fully realized. And that's what some of these people are feeling like. Okay, you're announcing this great kingdom. The captives are going to be set free, sight to the blind. All this great stuff's going to happen. The messianic hope of Israel was when the Messiah came, there was going to be peace and all these kinds of things. So, why isn't that happening? In fact, even to this day, 2,000 years later, one of the greatest Jewish objections to Jesus being the Messiah is that, well, if Jesus was the Messiah, where's the era of peace that was supposed to follow the Messiah's coming? The world seems to be getting more violent, not less violent. So where is that? And in part, it this whole chapter showing these questions were there from the beginning. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about last week, about the, the evil, the weeds, residing right alongside the sons of the kingdom, the wheat, and how they weren't going to be eradicated until the very end. All right. Anything else on these parables? Here's a couple more things to look at. The kingdom of heaven, so the kingdom, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. We've switched now into a different reason for talking about it. Now he's talking about what it's going to take and what the responses are going to be from some of the people to this kingdom. Jesus is making an analogy between something of great value. Here he's saying, it's like treasure hidden in a field. And when the person found it, he was so overjoyed, he sold everything he had and went and bought that field. Let me add another one because they seem to be, again, told in twos. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. All right, you're one of the people that Jesus is talking to when he's giving these parables. You've come a long way, you've traveled, you've heard he's done some pretty cool things. You showed up, he's come out of the house, finally. You know, you, got, you guys caught like the, you know, the four o'clock showing of Jesus or whatever. He comes out of the house and he tells these two parables and then he says, thank you very much. Or in Jesus speak, he says, whoever has ears, let him hear. And he goes back into the house or something. What does this mean? You've come a long way for this, to hear this amazing teacher, and you hear these two parables. What does this mean? Yeah. It's worth everything. It's worth everything. And is he commending any kind of action as a result of it? Sell everything you have. <laughs> Sell everything you have? Okay, do whatever it takes to get it. Does it sound like anything to you? It does, doesn't it? Doesn't it have the echoes of the rich young ruler in it? I mean, he's setting it up now. He doesn't, he's not alluding. Again, I'm not, this is just, these are just parables. Well, let's look at the rich young ruler story. Glad you asked. <laughs> if, you, if you actually have a Bible and you don't want to follow our electronic version, this is in Mark 10. I'm going to read 17 through 23. Both these parables sound to me very much like the story of the rich young ruler. At least in there, there's a connection to selling everything. So just to remind you the story, here's what it is. It starts in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. 
Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Now, Monique is right. It goes on from there to describe that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, the disciples are all then, how can anyone be saved? And it goes on into those kinds of things. But let's just look at the central story to find out that you can read it as a parable going back to our text in Matthew that he's saying these people found something of great value and then sold everything they had. And you could say, well, maybe that's just figurative in the parable. But here in real life, not in parable land, but in an actual event where Jesus actually interacts with somebody, that's exactly what he asked them to do, to sell everything they had. Let's go back to the parables for just a second. They are slightly different again in their application or the way that they're told. Notice in the first one, this person is stumbling upon the treasure. The second one, the person is looking for fine pearls. Again, commentators try to make a distinction between them and say, Jesus is trying to apply to all people. Some people are looking for this thing. Some people just stumble upon it. Either way, the response should be the same. When you understand the value of the kingdom, if you truly get what has been inaugurated by Christ, if you understand this better way that he offers to live in his kingdom and not in the kingdom of this world, then you would give up everything you had to follow, to be part of it, to join it. That's what these parables clearly indicate. And when he had the opportunity to confront someone who was also seeking asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I know our focus could always be on, okay, so that's in the future again, but remember, there's the part that begins now. We're in it now. We have the opportunity now. He said, here's the thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have. Ryan. I find that there's like, there's a tension between two meanings of go and sell everything you have because Back to the example of the pearl, where he went and he sold everything he had to find the pearl. His desire was that pearl. He wanted to have that pearl. So it's like, it's hard to tell someone to go slow and they have if they don't have the desire to follow, follow Jesus or the desire to, to have that certain thing. You know, and I think that that's the whole point. It's like, I think Jesus is telling us to have that desire, but it's like, how do you, like there's a tension between like, how do you find the desire of, letting go of those things, and, and, you know, I think that's just kind of a struggle of, of life a little bit. Okay. Philip. Trying to compare it to money, I think, is a really weird analogy, because in the parables, they both sell everything they have so that they can buy the kingdom. Like, 
basically, like they're buying what represents the kingdom. So like they're not selling everything just because they're selling everything because money is what gets the kingdom, which obviously is not the message that he's trying to portray. And so like I think it's a stretch to at least from those parables say, well, um, if you want to be part of this kingdom, you have to sell everything you have. I think it's more talking about the ideas that we were saying. It has to be something that's worth everything. That it is like something you have to be willing to sacrifice, or not be willing to, but like it's something worth sacrificing everything to get. The purpose is to point directly to the kingdom is this valuable. That you would sell everything you had to get it. It's true, and I'm glad you highlighted it, that one of the devices he uses in the parable is I'm going to sell everything I have to get this valuable thing, and that by no means is Jesus saying you can buy your way into the kingdom. But I think he is saying that you would sell everything you had to become part of the kingdom. But I'm going to go a step deeper in one moment, and then you, we'll come back. I think I'm sort of confusing or making synonymous, just because of the wording of it, like salvation and kingdom of heaven. Because the guy asks, how do I inherit eternal life? So we always say, like Christian churches always said, eternal life is salvation. So you're saying that you know, Christ is your Messiah, like you will have eternal life, you'll be with God. But here he's like, sell everything you have, and he doesn't want to do it, so then he's like, okay, well then you're not gonna hit the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying you can't be saved, or like I'm just really confused at what the rich man is losing. Or can you be saved and not inherit the kingdom as a separate thing? Or let me ask you a question. If I come to you and I say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matt, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay, anyone have a different answer? Tiffany, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Serve, serve among the poor? Is that in addition to his or instead of his? So if I serve among the poor, I don't have to believe anything or do anything? In addition. Oh, so you're adding, okay. So your, your gospel, like I've got to do some work in your gospel. Anyone else? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the fact that you believe that you can lose your salvation? Because some people say you just say the prayer or you say a prayer. Give me a gift receipt. I just want to know, like, up front. <laughs> I just want to know up front before I figure out, like, if anybody will take it back and give me my money back. I just want to know what I have to do to get it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's not even just belief because the Bible says even Satan knows who God is. I'm already, you're arguing with me. I'm going to go home without eternal life at this point. Right? <laughs> I'm going to be like, wow, these Christians are so crotchety. I'm just going to go home. Would anybody, if I came up to you on the street and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Would anybody say, sell everything you have? Like, that's not part of our idea of salvation, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem to be. Why is Jesus responding that way? He is looking for the kind of devotion. What would you give up for Christ? What would you give up for this kingdom? That's what this parable kind of goes back to about this pearl, about this treasure, that if you really want this, as Ryan said so badly, you would give up everything for it. What's funny, though, is when we talk about eternal life, we talk about it in a very simple term. And I'm not trying to take away the idea that salvation in Christ is as easy as belief in him. But that's the beginning of salvation. It does not really deal much with our residence in the kingdom and what we have to do it's not to keep that salvation, but to become more Christ-like, which is what's supposed to happen. And if you look at Christ and you see what he did, like serving the poor, then you start to understand that what we do 
is we focus on this one singular event. Tell me what I have to do to believe. Here, believe this way. Okay, good. You're good. But Jesus seemed to talk about the kingdom in much different terms. In fact, he used terms like this. Turning over to Luke 14. And I've selected verses 25 to 27 and verse 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes after me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, everything he has cannot be my disciple. That sheds a little bit different light to understanding those two parables. He is saying, if you understood the value of the kingdom that is at hand, if you really understood what it meant to grasp this thing and be part of it, you would give up everything you had. With the rich young ruler, we tend in the church to kind of rewrite that parable. You might have heard this phrase, well, that's because money was his God. So Jesus was testing him on the one thing that he knew he couldn't give up. I don't see any qualifications to this. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be prepared to give up everything. Not just money. (laughs) Money is one thing. Everything. Yes, even your own life, for my sake. If you truly understand what it means to follow me. That's how valuable it is to follow me. That's how valuable it is to be my disciple. That's how valuable this kingdom is. And that creates the problem that some people have called cheap grace. That was something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to refer to and and look at the concept of the idea that so many of us raise our hand and accept Jesus for the salvation. Some of us in our churches have referred to it as fire insurance. Like, yes, I'm in for that. As opposed to hell, anything else sounds good, I'm in, right? And we kind of lose sight of the fact that Jesus was calling us. We've just continued to live our life like normal. We've not taken any step to look at the marginalized, the poor, visit, clothe, heal, teach, preach, all the things that Jesus modeled and said, go and do these things. When we get to Matthew 25 in about seven or eight years, when we get that far into this book, some people call it a parable and some people say it's a direct teaching when he says he's going to separate the sheep and the goats and he's going to ask them, when did you do this? And we're going to be debating, as we've already highlighted in our series already, Whether that has to do with salvation or whether it has to do with something else. Because people have asked that question for a long time. I thought it was as simple as believing. And now it seems like he's adding this other thing to it. But I'm going to leave it there because we could go into it. And people have debated it books on end. Yeah, okay. Philip. You you mentioned with this and with the ruler and with the parables, uh, you might have just been a phrase that picking up. Like you said, well, all these are sort of pointing to, like, we have to be prepared to give up everything. Um, but I, and none of them, they don't say that. Like, they, they say you have to give up everything, not you have to be prepared to give up everything. Like, it doesn't talk about these people, well, you have to be ready to do this. Like, no, they all do it. Like, he says it, like, any, any of you who does not give up everything, not any of you who is not ready to or is prepared to or, like, but then well, what does that look like to actually give up everything? Like, none of us would be in here. Like, none of us would have anything. None of us would be able to get here because we wouldn't have gas. Like, none of us, like, would be eating very much because, you know, we just hope that and the food would just be there. And I don't know anyone that lives that way. Like, 
the best way I can harmonize it, if I, if I was going to do a word study on a word, it would be everything. Because this word is so fascinating to me, and I've actually looked at it a number of times from different angles, how many times it appears, where he uses it, because it's such an extreme word. And most of us, when we hear it, our tendencies go, oh, forget that. I mean, that's not even practical. But I, I like where you're struggling with. I think the way that I understand it is it's not ours to begin with, and that is the beginning of giving up everything. When we claim ownership of things in our lives, then we are resisting the idea that God is the owner of all things. Okay? Because God owns all things, we possess those things. And so in your example, like not even having gas and those kinds of things, that's where we start to confuse ownership and possession, and we do that quite a bit. God gives us things to possess because we're stewards. So he gives us the earth to take care of and to use and to grow things. He gives us even the animals to have dominion over at sometimes for food, at other times to, for, to work. The, I mean, there are all sorts of things in Scripture. The parable of the talents, he gives in that parable money and says, possess this and return even more from it. And it's the one who didn't do anything that got, you know, reamed. So the idea is not to confuse the possession and the ownership. I think what happens here is, of course, the rich young ruler, he thought of that as his ownership. Like, that was his, and he couldn't give it up because he had so much. It is very tempting to think when he says, he does not give up everything, cannot be my disciple. Well, there are people who literally did do that. Like Peter says to him later, in fact, I think later in Luke 14, he says, behold, we've given up everything for you, so what do we get? He asks it that way, like, I have left everything. I left behind a fishing business and everything else, and I'm following you around. We know the disciples go on to give their lives for this. So there are people who do it. So I don't want to kind of say, hey, let's not go crazy. There are people who have gone and taken this all the way, literally, and those are the people who became great. They followed him. But I would get into the nuances of the detail of how far is too far, but our problem is we go back to the idea that we're all in for the salvation thing. And then we, for the most part, I don't want to generalize, but for the most part, we continue living everything else like it's our life, our stuff, our things, and we're not following the part where we go, hey, if we really understood the value of the kingdom first that's to come, where everything is going to be so much better, last forever, no suffering, no sorrow, all that stuff, and we recognize the importance of the kingdom he's inaugurated here, where we're the hands and feet, the body of Christ in the world, who are supposed to be doing the clothing, the feeding, the loving, the teaching, the preaching, and all that stuff that's supposed to be happening, we would just give up everything for that. But we wouldn't be naked in the streets. We would have the things and we'd be using them for productive purposes, be using them for his purposes, not ours. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that sort of seen in like the early church? Like they did give up everything, they sold everything, they lived like communally, and they like served the people there around. Like they didn't just like sell everything, give it away, and walk around naked. Like they established like the early church and the early communities. So I think like that's kind of how we see it play out. Like reasonably and logically? Well, they gave up everything, give up everything, they gave everything to each other. Like, and so a lot of people didn't have anything to begin with. They just got more from the rich people. So it's like they, like most of the people probably got more than they gave. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that characterization is quite accurate. I mean, they may not have had much, but what they did was they all were, they lived communally and they lived for the common good of the community and then they gave outside of the community. That's how the community grew. 
I mean, if you look even at historians, they write that it was the Christians that took care of all the people that nobody else in the kingdom, the Roman Empire, was taking care of. They were the ones that were doing it, and they were putting to shame all the other people and all the programs the Romans had in place. It was the Christians who did that because of their communal lifestyle. Yeah? Well, I think, like, just to your point, um, I think kind of on the spectrum, it seems like sometimes when we get a little more on the pragmatic side of things, like, well, it wouldn't make sense. Like, how could, you know, what could we accomplish with that? I mean, I'm not encouraging you to walk around naked, like, <laughs> <laughs> anything that would be fruitless but I feel like the more crazy upside down kingdom perspective could be like who knows like who knows what God could do or develop in us and so so not to say that you're off base but that's one thing I struggle with is like when I see something I feel like it's not very practical or that even feels a bit foolish I wonder like well then maybe that's exactly the mark of the kingdom is stuff that doesn't make sense to the world. I think that's totally seen in the parable too because it's a merchant I mean, he's in the business and he sells everything. Like, that's the stupidest move he can make economically. You know, it's completely ridiculous, but that's what he does. Okay. The more we discuss this, the more confused I am about what kingdom of heaven means. Because it's like, obviously this parable is about like, the tree that doesn't produce fruit. So there's something to, it makes, like it alludes to losing your salvation or if we haven't produced anything with our lives, like there's that responsibility. Where like if we're on earth long enough, if we don't die right after we accept Christ, like there's some kind of responsibility because if we don't produce fruit, we're cut off and like burned and all this stuff. So it's like, what is he really talking about? Like what is the kingdom of heaven? Is it here? Is it actual salvation heaven? Like when we die, we can't have that if we don't give up everything? Because it's going back and forth. Like I still don't understand what it means. When Jesus talks about fruitfulness, I think that most of the time when you're talking about verses about being cut off, being fruitful, producing fruit, he's saying that that's actually the best indication to find out whether you really ever believed and were in this kingdom to begin with. One of the tensions that's always existed is, like I said, the simplicity of eternal life being offered to us by grace alone versus the liberty that comes with saying, okay, well, if I get it and it's not based on anything I do, then I could just do whatever I want, okay? Being part of Christ's kingdom and being his disciple and becoming more Christ-like is not limited to, okay, I'm saved. We've made them the same, but they're, they're, they're not synonymous is the best way to say it. But that same tension exists here. You see it. I mean, you have something as simple as John 3.16, and then you have all these passages that talk about what we have to do. The tension's already there. It's always been there. It's been there from the beginning. And we selectively, in many of our churches, look at one or the other. But they're both there from the beginning, and that's why later it has to be harmonized. I mean, you put John 3.16 right next to the whole sheep and goats passage and try to harmonize those. And that's why the whole thing begins, because people are like trying to wrap their mind around both of them. Jesus does ask this one thing. He says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. We know <laughs> that the disciples didn't really understand them all. But I want to ask you the same question tonight. Have you understood all these things? Do you get what he's saying? Jesus is talking about this kingdom that he's announcing. 
this way that God's kingdom has come and you can accept to be part of that kingdom and follow that more excellent way. That you can be part of. Do you get it? I'm sure the disciples were saying yes at the moment. Maybe they thought they got it. Maybe they just didn't want to say like, no, we're still kind of stupid and in the dark, even after you explained it a few times in this chapter. But I want to know if we get it. And I think the way to find out if you get it, just like the way you find out if you really believe this stuff, is are you really willing to give up everything? Have you given up everything to follow Christ? To be part of the things that are priority in his kingdom, like loving and clothing and feeding and traveling around to preach the gospel and do all the things that Christ modeled. Would you give up everything for that? Have you already? Do you hold it with an open hand and say, it's all yours. I will use it for your purpose, not mine. I will use it for your gain, for the kingdom's gain, not mine. I will put it all for you because it all belongs to you. None of it is mine to begin with. It's true that in this room we've been given much. We've looked at those verses. To those who much has been given, much more will be demanded. So much more will be demanded of each of you in this room. Have you understood all these things? Will we do them? That's where I think the value of the group comes in if we're really going to be friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, to have the ability and the accountability to walk up to somebody and say, do you understand this thing? To hold each other accountable because left to our own devices, we'd slip away. He said to them, therefore every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasure as well as old. I think he said that because he just heard them say yes and he didn't believe them. So he threw out another thing that was hard to understand right afterwards. <laughs> They're like, have you understood these things? Yeah, sure, we got it all. We got it all right here. We wrote it down. Yeah. Matthew, you got that down? You writing this down? And then he says this, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. I'll just tell you what he's trying to say. He's making an analogy between them and the teachers of the law. You, disciples, who understand the kingdom are like the teachers of the law. You, too, will instruct and teach other people in wisdom about the kingdom. And you, too, are learning the new things that come in the announcement of this kingdom so that you will pull out things and teach things from the Old Testament, from the older things that point to this kingdom coming, but it's now here and you are learning the ways of this new kingdom. You will be able to teach these new things to people. And so it is with the people in this room. I hope that you too are here because you're not just having me just open up these things and throwing all this stuff out to you, but that you too will turn around and I know many of you are more than capable of this. Some of you are already doing this to become teachers of this kingdom to other people. Not just to tell them about it, but to know enough from the things we talk about in here and the things we discuss and the things that we debate and even the hard things we bring up to be able to go to somebody and explain to them. So if they asked you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can unpack some of these same passages for them. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. This is what it means to be part of the church. This is what it means for the Holy Spirit to indwell us. This is what it means to give up everything to follow Jesus. Do you get these things? Yes. Can you now turn around and teach them to other people as well? Are you getting that out of what we're doing here tonight?
I hope so. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I confess that we never are able to quite put it into a nice, neat box. I pray that every time that we think that we are able to do so, that you would continually surprise us, and you do. And your word is evidence of that. That every time we think we've got you cornered, every time we think we've got a nice, neat doctrine, it seems that somehow you just grow bigger in our sight. Your words cause us to peer even more deeply, to question what we think we know. And Lord, I'm kind of like the disciples sometimes. I say that I understand, but Lord, when really pressed and questioned, sometimes it seems like I've got to go back and learn even more. Thank you, Lord, that you offer us grace and salvation. But at the same time, Lord, you show us that that belief comes at a much higher cost than we would imagine. Be in our midst, Lord, tonight. Continue our conversation even after we leave here. And Lord, I pray that you would keep the denial away from our minds. Just let these things fester if they have to in our minds. Let them bother us this week. Let us continually search, Lord, until we find not just the answers, we find you. That's ultimately what we're looking for in this life. We pray this in your name. Amen.